This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. First of all, thank you to the people who emailed me in the commercial break, a number of them who said, get a screen door. I do have a screen door, but you know what it's called? It's the rolling kind. It's the kind that you roll across so it doesn't have a hard edge on the bottom so the cat can crawl under it if she feels like it. And don't you think a mouse can crawl under there too? Like, I don't think that screen door is going to do anything. So yeah, the screen door, maybe I could get a different screen door. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about the hot question of the day. We're talking about the BC day long weekend. We hope you're enjoying yourself, but there was so much going on in Metro Vancouver. We want to know which event did you attend this weekend? Was it the Pride Parade? Man, the crowds yesterday for that, spectacular. Was it the Honda Celebration of Light? What a show by Team Croatia on Saturday night. Was it White Rock Sea Fest? Used to go there myself when I was a kid. I heard there was a great turnout. Or do you say, I didn't go to any of those. Too many people. Check out our hot question of the day at Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW. The votes are already coming in fast and furious. And right now it looks like too many people is winning. But cast your vote and I'll keep track of that throughout the show today. What is the best way to monitor pollution or map pollution across Metro Vancouver? Well, if you ask some UBC researchers, they will tell you, ask the honeybees. So that is exactly what they did. We are joined now by Dominique Weiss, who's a senior author and director of UBC's Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Tell me a bit about this research that you did. So this research came out in a discussion of a with friends, and one of the friends was Julia Common, who is the head beekeepers of Ice for Humanity. It started in 2014. They had honey produced by some beehives in downtown Vancouver, and the key question was, is the honey clean? And I said, I can help. You know, Hives for Humanity is a non-profit organization helping the community in downtown Eastside. Mm-hmm. And we had 10 samples, and the good news was that the honey was very clean, meaning the trace metal concentrations that we measured in those honeys were actually below what averages observed in other honeys in Australia, for instance, or Europe. So Ice for Humanity honey is very clean. That's interesting, though, right? Because a lot of these days, there's a lot of hives that are right in kind of the downtown part of the city because people are very keen on on making and selling honey. Yes, and that's where the story is actually quite interesting and has broader implications because now many people want to have a city garden, uh, and so it's important to assess the quality of the environment. This being said, though, we also, as we did this same study for four years, and it's perfectly reproducible over four years, we see concentration gradients, which means that 
the trace metal levels are usually higher downtown and, and around commercial. And as we go away, and basically that works gradually away from the port of Vancouver and downtown east side, mm-hmm. the concentration decreases. So we have some honeys from Delta, for instance. They have much, even much more lower levels than in the downtown area. Interesting. Then, so what does that tell us about the bees? Well, the bees sample the environment. They fly, and that's the, the beauty of studying honey: is that the radius of activity of foraging of a bee is about one to two kilometers. So we have very localized sampling spots. And interestingly also, that's not published in the study yet, but the bees have higher level than the honey, which means that the honey production is is, uh, cleaning somehow what the bee samples. And um, so they do the sampling for us. That is so interesting because I know there's also been a huge concern in recent years about what is causing so many bee colonies to die off. So their relationship with pollution is kind of different than what I thought. Yes, although it depends which pollution you're talking about. Here we're talking about metal pollution that is induced by human activities, such as traffic, boats, um, fuel consumption, like the big cargo cargo boats that come in the port of Vancouver. Yeah. We we not with our technique we're not analyzing pesticides or organic compounds that make their way into the honey. I see. Okay. So then can we when we look at the honey from these like more urban areas versus like in the uh, country settings are they very similar? In terms of the metals we measured, there are slight difference, but it's all in low levels. For instance, because we wanted to put our study in a context and, and we defined six sectors in the greater Vancouver area, we also analyzed honey from Bowen Island and from Galliano Island because this was further away from traffic. Right. And they have even lower levels. This being said, Bowen Island honey is slightly more elevated in some trace metals than Galliano, and the explanation for that is is relatively simple. Bowen is close to Horseshoe Bay. There is a fair amount of ferry traffic there, and that's how we make the, the correlation. Right, but then wouldn't also traffic in the downtown area also result in pollution like that? Yes. And we can identify that by some trace element ratios. That is like so it. interesting, though. That yeah. You would think that with Bowen Island, that, that would be much more uh, pure honey. Well, all our honeys are pure. Let me give you um, an example okay. or to, to have a feel for what concentration level we analyze. We're dealing with what we call PPB, or parts per billion. And one part per billion is equivalent to one drop in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So that's the levels we are measuring here at PCIGR, the Pacific Center for Isotope and Geochemical Research. Wow. So we, we're very, very low. The other thing that's unique about our technique is that in addition of measuring concentration, 
We also used what we call a fingerprint technique, lead isotope fingerprinting, which allows us to have an idea of the source of the metal. Right. And what we see is that those metals and the Stanley Park trees, because that's part of the, the story too, we analyzed two slices of trees from Stanley Park that had fallen down from in the 2006 big storm. So they have the honey there is as a lead fingerprinting that doesn't overlap with anything natural in the area. We have, for instance, comparison with the volcanoes, the Fraser River particles or sediments. It is that lead that we find in the honey downtown right. and in Stanley Park doesn't is purely man-made. But what I guess what is so interesting then, Dominique, about all of this is that overall, it, you know, no matter where the t- honey was, whether it's urban, rural, whatever the case is, it's still very pure. Yes. That says, a, so, that says a lot about how hard bees work, doesn't it? Yes. And, you know, it was the, we also could not have done our study without the very excellent collaboration with Hives for Humanity. They did the sampling for us. Also, in the middle of the, the, these four years, the project took such a larger scale that the lead author of the, the paper, Kate Smith, is a PhD student. She went to beekeeper training and she has, she's capable of sampling. But we had access to all these very specific hives from Hives for Humanity, and that gave us a, an amazing advantage in our study. Oh, this is just so fascinating. Dominique, thank you so much for your time on this today. You're most welcome. Thank you. As Dominique Weiss is a senior author and the director of UBC's Pacific Center for Isotopic and Geochemical Research. Well, some pretty big news from the world of fast food promotions. The very well-known Tim Hortons Roll Up the Rim campaign is going to change. Now, it has been a staple for that chain for 30-plus years, which begs the question, has it just gotten too stale? Well, that's actually what the president of the company thinks, and they're now trying to figure out a way to modernize the contest for the digital age, as in they're thinking about using an app. And I'm thinking, well, how do you use an app for a Roll Up the Rim contest? Doesn't that take kind of the fun away from this? Well, why don't we ask the person who kind of came up with this idea back in the first place, back in the 1980s. Ron Boost is with us now, the former marketing director for Tim Hortons, created the Roll Up the Rim campaign, author of the book, Tales from Under the Rim, The Marketing of Tim Hortons. Ron joins us now. Ron, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Simi. It's good to talk to you. What did you think when you heard the news that they they feel like it's not doing as well and they need to update Roll Up the Rim? Well, I, I... I'll go by the same thing that customers do and take a look at the contest itself as it is today. Now, I may be wrong, and I, I, I've been to that, but it seems to me that the cups this year were produced very cheaply. <clears throat> that is, that the design work on it was rather poor. It was all just one color. There, was no, there were no pictures of the prizes at all, just a cup with an arrow. Now, I may be wrong, but that's, what I, that's the way I remember it. That in itself... D- diminishes the effect because who sits down to read a coffee cup? Nobody. But they do look at a picture of a car or of a TV or so a bicycle true. or wherever it is, and it increases more interest. That is so true. Like we see that, we think, I want that. I want to win that with this cup. Yep. You've got to also remember with advertising that if if you can get maybe thirty percent of the customer's attention, you're doing really well. Nobody sits down to read an ad. 
Nobody, except me, of course, because I like advertising. (laughs) But but what I'm getting at is uh, you've got to really appeal to them. If you can get just enough interest to get them in the store, you've done a tremendous job. Now, I also had an email from somebody who suggested that one of the part one of the problems with this campaign now as well is that you never hear who wins. You don't. It's just like these prizes go out into the ether, and you don't know. Did somebody win the car? Did somebody win a bike? as far as I know, we used to do it anyway. You contact the company, and they'll send you a list of the winners' names. But that's no good. You want to see somebody with that prize that you right. You can know that that prize was actually given out. Well, again, I don't know what they're doing now, but when I was running it, and you had a car winner at store X in say yeah. Lancaster, Ontario, or whatever it was, you made a big hoopla out of it. The car would be delivered to that store. There'd be balloons. There'd be cake. Everything. We give it all away. And we'd have invite people to come and see the winner of that prize. It was a very open contest. Uh, now, Ron, let's go back in time here. Tell us, how did you come up with this idea? Who, how did you create Roll Up the Rim? Well, you're going to be disappointed, I think, with the simplicity of oh. it. But <laughs> <laughs> really, it, this is how it happened. Uh, I had a meeting with our sole cup supplier at that time, Lily Cup, to uh, discuss Christmas cup designs, which we were doing. Before I went into the meeting, one of the executives of the company said to me, said, uh, Ron, could you give some thought to some kind of a contest or something we could do to stimulate coffee sales in the summer? Because it's a hot beverage, and in those days, that's all we had. So I said, fine. Now, that was my introduction to what we should do with the contest. That was it. I was the sole person running the advertising. There was nobody else. I, my staff was me. That's it. When I wanted an answer, I put my hand up. <laughs> so it was, it was the only thing going on. When we had the meeting with the Lily Cup, um, I st- at the end of the meeting, I said, uh, can you tell me something about how to manufacture, how you manufacture these cups? And they brought with them an uncut roll. That's a, it's the rolls of, uh, of cups are about six feet high. They're huge on these machines. But they brought me a chunk of it. And on it was a picture of the upcoming cup. And they're stamped out like a, uh, like stamp out a, a dress pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I saw. So I said to them, well, can you print anywhere on this paper? And they sort of looked at me like I had one of the bricks drop off the load. And they said, yeah, we can, but uh, why would you do that? It's a waste of ink. I said, well, that's, that's just wanted to know what to do here. I said, can you print on this space at the bottom of the cup, this white space? And uh, they said, uh, well, that's called a ledger line, which is used today. And the information there, the code as to the type of cup, the size of cup, and the colors. So I said, well, what's this other white space at the top? Remember, I knew nothing about making cups at all, absolutely nothing. They said, well, that's the rim of the cup. I said, well, if that's the rim of the cup, it doesn't look like a rim to me. And they said, no, you put it on a machine, and it rolls the rim down. Ah. I said, can you, can you print at that point? I said, yeah, but why would you do that? If you roll the rim down, you won't be able to see what's under it. You want to catch up with me? That's it. That's. <laughs> I hate to tell you. It but seems that was, so that simple. Was, so, did you take that back to your bosses and go, "Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, and people are going to roll it up." Did anybody ever say to you, "Nobody's going to roll up the rim"? No, I was quite autonomous. Um, advertising was an expense and a luxury to the company at that time. There was no agency or anything. So, what I did do, which I was asked to do, was confront the store owners with it. So we had a store owner's meeting. I basically told them what I wanted to do. And would you accept it? And if you'd produce the product, the food product, coffee, donuts, muffins, and cookies, 
on a one and nine basis ratio, here's what it would cost you, which was about half a percent, one percent of the cost of the cups in a thousand cup case. I said, would you like to give it a try? And they said, sure. And away we went. How successful was it at the beginning? I'm sorry? How successful was that at the beginning when you first started doing it? Well, it's a good question because people didn't really trust contests at all in those days. Uh, the calls that I get on it were, um, you don't give away prizes, there's, there's, you, you cheat, you lie, you know, everything. It's just awful stuff you get because the reputation for contests was not good. When they started to say that, what we did was we, there are big pictures in the store, 11 by 14, it's big, bigger than that, I'm sorry. You, you know the posters? Yeah. And I converted those posters and started printing the names on the various winners. Not their address and phone numbers, just the name of, you know, Joan Smith or right. Simi from uh, B.C. or whatever. And uh, it got to be that we didn't have enough room. There were so many of them. By that time, people started to really believe that we were giving away real prizes. Uh, as I said, with the cars, when we got into those, the first ones were Jeeps. And uh, we'd have a, a real co- a real celebration. They'd come out and we'd see people. We invited the, the various dealers eventually to park the cars out in front of the store so they could sell them from there. We did actually sell cars from the front of the store. You're kidding me. No, no. The <clears throat> customers would come by and say, I like that. They'd go back to the dealer. The dealer said, can I have my car back? I've sold it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what it was all about. We but worked very closely together with people like that. This was an iconic promotion for so long. Where do you think it's gone wrong? Have people just gotten tired of these contests, or does it need to be refreshed? Well, as I said, uh, the first thing I do is, is come back to the basics, because I think the current owners have missed that completely. Uh, give it some pizzazz, for goodness sakes. Uh, show some color and life in the cups. The cups were the main vehicle. When we started, the success of this contest really was noticed because when people started to believe it, they began jumping over the counter to get at the cups. They dump out garbage pails out in the counter out of the lot to be able to get the cups. Are you kidding me? Up. No, no, I'm, it's honest. I'm telling you the truth. One guy that won a truck once had a pickup. It was an old beat-up thing, and he'd drink the coffee for him and throw it in the back of the truck. At the end of the season, he thought, I'd better clean the cup out. And he did, and one of the cups had a truck on it, so he won it. It's all kinds of interesting stories. I see. Those are the great stories, though, that kind of make people want to participate, but I feel like we haven't heard many of those stories. Like, the reputation of Tim Hortons has taken a bit of a battering the last couple of years, wouldn't you say? With a large sledgehammer. What do you attribute that to? Um, well, to be quite honest, when when we were we the collective group of us were working at the company, uh, the store owners were king and queen. They really counted. These people that sold everything they had, bought a store and a franchise, worked fourteen hours a day to make it work. You listened to what they said. You listened to them because they were your fingers and toes. But today, it's a shareholder, some guy that cuts a check and wants part of the business. But that's not the person that's making the money. The person that's making is the store owners. And they're your fingers and toes. You listen to them because they know what's going on with the customer base. They hear them. And that's how we, we, we worked it. We worked very closely with them on that. I think that had a lot to do with it. So if you were to give them some advice on how to get back to where they were, what would you tell them? I think they're trying to now. Uh, I give them full credit for that. I, I don't know any of the people that run the company now, the restaurant brands international, but uh, they're trying to come back on that. But 
You know, it's very difficult to get somebody back to a company. Very, very, very hard. I think you'd understand that. It's much easier to keep a customer than it is to lose one. And also, there's an awful lot of competition now that wasn't when we were there. Um, we, we, we got things. We led the pack when we were doing it. That was the difference. We had to because if we didn't, we'd go broke. We had to come up with ideas and thoughts and work. New store designs, store locations, multiple stores, putting them on the highways, all these things counted so much. And uh, we broke a lot of barriers that way. So that, that's the kind of thing that you need. Uh, do you see some universal rules and kind of the things that you learn from marketing and advertising at Tim Hortons that can apply to any company out there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do in the presentations that I do. Um, I can't remember all the, the words of it because I'm not ready for that. But uh, it, it, it's a matter of, if you, what, what did I say? If you, uh, if, you can, if you can't do it, you know, you shouldn't be in the business. If, if, you're, if you don't want to really put yourself into it, then why, why are you there? You either do it or you get out of the way and let somebody else do it. And as I said, we led the pack. And it's the same for any business, not, not just uh, Tim Hortons and Donuts and coffee and sandwiches, but anyone. If you can't be first, be the best. That's really what it is. You know, we all hope to leave a mark someday with our work, don't we? That we will be remembered. Not all of us will be. At least not like our next guest, that's for sure. Brad Jalbert is a rose hybridizer and a rose expert. His company, Select Roses in Langley, is known all over the world for creating the most beautiful specimens to celebrate all different occasions. For instance, he recently created a rose to celebrate the divine Miss M, Bette Midler, and her work as the founder of the New York Restoration Society. He's written books on roses. He's known internationally for his expertise. So now this superstar horticulturist is joining us in studio to talk about roses and more. Hi, Brad. Hello. How are uh, you today? I am so happy to be talking to you because I love this topic. How did you get into it? Uh, it was. I always tell people it was a hobby that went wild. I loved roses when I was young. I was an introverted, uh, quiet child. Mom and dad will disagree, but I was. And <laughs> so everybody in our family gardened, and I, I loved growing roses and beautiful things. And that, and that really was it. Um, and I learned more about it, and I wanted to perfect my skills. So I read more books. There was no internet back then. Uh, that ages me. And, <laughs> and you had to talk and engage and meet people and learn more about the craft. And that's that's how it all started. And you went back to school so you could yep. be a horticulturist? Yeah. I studied at the uh, University of Fraser Valley. They call it now. I'm a top 40 alumni of that group. Of course and you are. Uh, <laughs> it, was a it was a lot of fun. And immediately out of that, I started the rose nursery and I started breeding, creating roses right away. And usually people get into that in their senior years, but I knew right away, I like to create my own. How do you do that? How do you create uh, your you, own new, you, brand new roses? Okay, it's really quite easy. Basically, a rose can... Yeah, no, but if, anybody can do a painting, but is it any good? So it's the same thing with roses. Okay. I choose who's going to be the boy, who's going to be the girl, and I arrange the date. And, and, so and what happens I, after that and is what happens, yeah, and then they come, nature. It, it, nature, the seed is born, and then we start selecting who's the best of the best. I see. What is the process like? How do you start? How do we, start? We, we take who's going to be the female flower and we strip off the male parts so that it can't pollinate itself. And then we collect. In, in the case of Bette Midler's rose, it was Sunny Sky was going to be the girl. So her boyfriend was Pope John Paul II. So we had to go and collect the boy parts of Pope John Paul II and make him do his little thing in a cup. 
And I collected his Paul. <laughs> he was hard to work with. <laughs> Brad's laughing at my face because I'm going, this is not how I pictured this going. This yeah, that, is- that's what happened on stage too with Bette. Um, and, and the Pope met sunny sky and little babies are born. And so we, out of those, maybe a hundred germinated and we narrowed it down over the years to the best of that, that seed lot. Right. So that brings up the question, how long does it take then to create an entirely new rose? The first process, you do the cross in the summer, the next year it germinates and it blooms as a baby plant. And from then on, it's testing. So what we do, we want to develop a type of rose that's tough and strong that anybody can grow. So we plant them out in our field where we test them five to seven years. They're not sprayed with pesticide. They're barely fed. We water them maybe in severe drought. So you throw the toughest conditions possible. Toughest conditions. And we want it to look the worst in our backyard. So in your garden, it looks the best. And that's the difference between our breeding program, and that's what's put them in demand with a lot of other people. Basically, I torture them. But your and, roses are known all over the world and very popular. Because I had asked you when you came in, you know, I love roses, but what do you do about aphids? Because I always had that problem when I grew yeah, roses. And you yeah, were like, sure. your problem is the type of rose that you're planting. Yeah, really it is. And some of them are just more resistant to it. Aphids can go on any, any plant. Um, so first of all, I tell people, if they're just a few, turn a blind eye to it. Who cares? We don't want to overspray with pesticides. If, if it's in a pot and you have no beneficial plants around, it's, it's natural that the aphids will go to whatever is alive there, right. whether it's a weed or it's a rose. They happen to love beautiful things, so they go to roses. You can squeeze them off or use a little soapy right. water. But if you have a plant that's naturally resistant, and that's what we select for, it solves three-quarters of the problems. So we, we work now with Stanley Park, Queen Elizabeth, the Government House, all, all of those people, and then we've replaced those old roses with easy-to-grow ones because they don't spray anymore, and the difference is night and day, night Amazing. and day. How do you get your inspiration? Like, do you look at colors and you think, oh, I want this rose? How do you- I, it comes from within. I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> I, always, I always say I live to inspire and be inspired. I will, the, the t-shirt you're wearing, I think, mm, I got a braid of rose that color. It's pink, like a, a very hot, bright pink. Hot, bright pink. I'll be walking along and I'll see something and I'll think, oh, I'd love to braid a rose that color. It just comes to be whatever. In my quiet time. What makes a great rose? To you, what makes a perfect rose? It, well, I don't believe there's perfection in nature. The only thing perfect in this world is my mother. And Aww, other than you're that, so sweet. <laughs> oh, she's listening. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's thinking, why isn't he home at work? Um, you know, the what makes a perfect rose, I think it's fragrance. Everybody wants that. The, yes. pu- the public wants something that they don't have to fuss with that's easy to grow. Um, they, they, they don't mind watering it once in a while. We do that to everything. But they don't want to have to cover it in pesticides right. and, and work with it all the time. And they're not picky on the form as long as it's... A, a pretty shape of a flower and a pretty color. Yeah. And I think that's perfect. So to me, the perfect rose is something that pleases the general public. And it blooms they, a lot. It blooms a lot. All summer. All, everything yeah. that we breed now blooms from here, May, till November. What? So that's a little, yeah, May till November. You could cut roses on a balcony in Vancouver. I've had friends that said, Brad, it's late November, early December, a protected spot. I look at the rose bloom I just cut. And this is, this is in December. And then they will have blooms maybe late April in an early year or in, or in May. There's no other plant that does that. What's your favorite color for a rose? Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before. I, I love white. I love a big bouquet of white. I love the creamy colors. Um, the corals, though, I love too because the they glow in the evening. I and love that white, ivory, yellow yeah, coral. Right, right in through that there. Spectrum, yes. And um, also a color punch of putting something purple in there I like. Oh, yes. Um, there's no tr- true blue in a rose, but you can put some purple in there. I love that. 
a, a plain red rose, it's kind of boring. But if you have a landscape rose, if the city thinks, you know, we need to brighten up an area and we just want something bulletproof, sure, red would look great there. But not, not creative not, enough for you, no, right? Not, not creative enough for me. Is no. there a dream out there that you still have, something that you haven't quite been able to get? The rose for my mother. And she is tough. I keep presenting her with one. She goes, you can do better. You can do better. What? So mom is 81 now. Her name is Lori. What does she want? Everything perfection. She wants lavender, mauve. That was her wedding colors. It has to be fragrant and it has to be healthy. And that does not exist anywhere in the rose world. Most lavender roses are unhealthy. They have ones now that are healthy, but they're not fragrant she wants fragrance she wants everything <laughs> right I, I sensed a little bit of frustration there when you said it yes. that last little bit. i've shown her some that are extraordinary and not good she enough? said not good enough you can do better and yet you're doing this for her for free because it's your mother you get paid a lot of money for your services yes i do I, and it's going up all the time uh be a, a, But I'm not motivated. Money doesn't motivate me. Don't tell people that. Well, nobody. I get a kick out of it. It's fun. It it is getting more fun 30 years later than the day I started. It is getting more fun. That's obviously why you are so good at it. Uh, The Bette Midler Rose, the Mm -hmm. Divine Miss M, that was a beautiful, creamy, white rose. Very unusual shape. Huge rose. And they say it looks like there's a big dollop of whipped cream on it. It does. And she rejected the first rose they offered her, and it was from the biggest breeding firm in the entire world. And she rejected it. And then she saw, they contacted me, and I I thought, "Mm, okay, this is what I think she'll like. I sent that in, and Apparently, she just loved it, and she saw the rose there, got to meet her. Really nice lady, very genuine. All because yeah. of roses. All because of so roses. So you're meeting celebrities, you're being flown all yeah. over the world. Yes. All we, because uh, you make spectacular roses. Yeah, yeah. When in first class, the, uh, we almost, well, we didn't almost crash. The plane ran out of gas, so we, uh, after, well, after circling LaGuardia, yeah. That's scary stuff. It was, it was a lot stuff. of fun, but um, New York was great. I loved it. You told me that you've got a rose that's coming out soon. Yes. That is just going to be a superstar. A superstar. Next year is our 30th anniversary in business, and my rose agent, other growers have said this is the best. So you have a rose agent? Yes, he's in the UK, Dylan, <laughs> okay. Dylan Reese. And okay. he, he knows everybody in the rose world. So what he does is go goes to the different growers and says, look, I'm representing Brad, and these are his new roses. And you're going to try them. and Because um, you don't do. grow them. You don't breed them. You grow I, them. I breed and them. Then you and send... We have a retail nursery. And then we send out to the field growers. They're the photocopy machine. Right. I, I want to create. And somebody else can photocopy it. Um, and uh, so th- this rose is a beautiful golden color, but it has a little bit of scarlet on the edges, sometimes a little more apricot and coral. It changes through the season. And we've tested it for years, and it's never shown any kind of disease. Blooms constantly, has a frilly little edge to it. Uh, I'm known for ruffly blooms and different shaped flowers. So next year that'll be out. And that's called Glowing Inspiration. So look mine. for Glowing Inspiration yes. next year. Yeah, either at our nursery or through a mail-order nursery in, in Canada if you're some somewhere at a distance from here. That's amazing. How do you pick the right rose for the area that you live in? Um, talk to somebody knowledgeable. So go to the there's We have great garden centers in the Lower Mainland. They're fantastic. And I'm sure there's some in Vancouver. And just find out, look, what do you have that's growing well here that people come back and, and say are doing well? And I can throw one name out there. Everybody knows Julia Child, the famous yes. chef. Fantastic rose. It's in all the parks. It's everywhere and it does well. The Julia Child rose? Oh, yeah. Julia Child rose. It's a yellow fragrant rose. We use it in breeding and I've never heard anybody say anything bad about it. We, For our 25th year, we did a rose called Our Anniversary. 
it's great. And the next year is the Glowing Inspiration Rose. But there's a lot of really good ones. But the unfortunate thing is when we go to the average garden center, a lot of times we see the famous old ones that we know, the Peace Rose. Yeah. And this, they're actually, on the scale of one to four of resistance to disease, they're a one. What we're breeding now is a three and four resistance. So that's completely different. So don't pick different. one of those old-fashioned roses. No, don't pick, pick If newer. you want one for, um, you know, to remember grandmother, sure, plant one or come and, come and see me and spend ten or 20000 and you can have your own rose for her. You meant her. dollars. Yeah, that's how much it costs to hire Brad. <laughs> uh, uh, now, what is your absolute favorite rose? Oh, people ask that. Uh, the one that's in the trunk going home with somebody. But I have a few favorites, <laughs> and the, there's one called Rosemary Harkness. It's very rare, and it's in the corally shades with peach and a little pink on the outside and I, I got it many years ago from England it's hard to find we, we bring a few plants in every year and it has a strong citrus like fragrance there's oh. nothing like it nothing in the world smells like it and I, w- I would say that's my ultimate favorite rose I would say from what I've learned from Brad when you're going to your nursery make sure you ask for Brad Jalbert's roses or like from select roses sure. uh, out there because yeah. otherwise people are just they're going to stock the same old same old and you're they, not going to get that variety or ask ask for what is healthy. Okay, yep. that make good good advice, Brad. You come back and see us sometime. Okay, I will. thanks for having me. Would love to have you. That is Brad Gelbert from Select Roses in Langley. You can look them up online, and their website is selectroses.ca. You should see the picture of that Rosemary Harkness rose. It is beautiful. But if you have roses and questions, again, check out their website. That is selectroses.ca. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Harrison Duran. Harrison is a fifth-year biology student at the University of California, Merced. He recently made the discovery of a lifetime on a paleontology dig. He unearthed a partial triceratops skull. Why is this so significant? Well, CKNW contributor Claire Allen recently caught up with Harrison to learn all about it. Harrison, I just wanted to start off at the beginning because I know you've been interested in dinosaurs before this discovery. How long have you just been fascinated by dinosaurs? Well, I've been fascinated by dinosaurs uh, since, I, since I was an infant. There's just something about them that really captivated me, that really uh, spawned this sort of essence of discovery and, uh, and, and mystery in myself that has... Uh, caused me to have this passion, this passion to study the lost worlds of the past, study uh, paleontology. And uh, I think that it's uh, something that's been going on for a long time. How did you get involved with this dig in North Dakota? How did that come about? And was that your first dig that you've participated in? Yeah, this was the first dig that I participated in. And I got involved with it when I met Dr. Michael Geelan uh, at a biotech conference in Austin, Texas. And from there, we both have an interest in biotechnology, uh, but we also have a passion for studying natural history, for studying paleontology. So Mike told me that he goes out to the Badlands in North Dakota uh, to every every uh, year or so to go dig. And... He said, hey, you want to come out this year? What time do you make it? And I said, I don't know, be there from June 1st to 14th. He said, all right, let's do it. So we went out and uh, excavated, and that's how the dig was started. So what was the dig like, and, and what were you expecting to find? In the, the region that we were digging, it's uh, known as the Hell Creek Formation. It spawns across uh, four states, and the Hell Creek Formation uh, essentially contains rock from the Lake Cretaceous era. And in this rock, you're able to find 
dinosaurs that lived during the late Cretaceous period. Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus, Dakotaraptor, Pachycephalosaurus, uh, all these animals that lived uh, during this time live in the Hell Creek Formation. So when we go digging in that rock, we expect to find uh, stuff that lived during the late Cretaceous era. The first few days, we set off to go look. We, from uh, one of the locals, told us that there's a place where some people had found uh, leaf fossils embedded in sandstone deposits. So we went there and we found a lot of leaf fossils. And we scoured around even more. And sure enough, we uh, eventually came across Alice. Right. So obviously, Alice is what has garnered so much international attention. Um, and obviously, you are looking to gain some experience, but you've gained some notoriety around the world for Alice. Can you explain to me what you ended up finding and what, what Alice is? What we ended up finding was a partial triceratops skull. And this skull was first, uh, well, first it's, in, it's embedded uh, below the ground, but just a little bit sticking out of the ground a couple inches. And what happened was uh, Dr. Geelan just uh, spotted a, a pile of a shard of uh, weathered out eroded bones on the surface of the ground. And when we, he called me over and we came over to check it out and we knew what it was, the second we saw it, uh, it was a triceratops because it had the base of the horn sticking out a couple inches from the ground. Uh, but the base of the horn looks like any other uh, jumble of rocks, but you really have to have a trained eye and you have to know what you're looking for. Right. I mean, that's so cool. I can't even imagine that moment. Can you kind of explain what what that moment was like when you realized what you had uncovered? Well, yeah, I, I knew that it was a, the more we dug, the more we uh, saw, the, every day we exposed more and more of the skull. And then with every day, I understood that we had found something special. Alice is a 65 million year old triceratops skull or partial, a part of a triceratops skull. I imagine this wasn't a quick excavation. How long did it take to get the fossil, Alice, out of the ground? Yeah, so we found it on uh, day four and then it took us another 10 days uh, to dig it out. This process was a uh, kind of a lengthy and delicate and uh, we had to work very diligently to uh, basically glue down the, uh, the specimen with a specialized glue and then spray on an accelerant to instantly harden the glue. And then uh, that would allow us to keep working on the skull. So you have to uh, apply the glue, spray, apply the glue, spray, and uh, work diligently to uh, preserve the skull before we can wrap it up in foil, then wrap uh, plastered-covered burlap sacks over the foil to make like a cast and uh, solidify it for transport. You've said that Alice is being kept in a secret location, and I was a little bit surprised to hear that, you know, there is a reason why they these locations are kept secret. Can you explain why you're sort of keeping Alice's whereabouts to yourself? Well, it's, it's a very uh, valuable specimen. It's a, it's a very important specimen, and then especially now it's garnered international attention. So it's, uh, it's good that such a valuable item is kind of kept on, under our total control. Uh, we don't want to have a lot of uh, uh, 
prowling, you know, individuals around, knowing where the uh, knowing where the skull is. Because we have a we have a lot of attention on a you know a, a prized item, then there tends to be a lot of wandering eyes, and uh, that's something we don't really typically want. We want to keep the situation under our control. I'm just wondering, Harrison. Like this is your you mentioned this was your first dig, and obviously you found something that people work their entire lives to find or have a discovery similar to your discovery of Alice. Do you have any more digs planned for the future? I have plans to continue digging in the Badlands forever. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we have several different other uh, triceratops skulls on the way uh, being excavated by fossil excavators. Uh, so we will get, to get that news out to you guys shortly and we'll have updates for you. Have you ever had one of those times when you're, you know, let's say driving home from work, right? And it's the same thing. You do it all the time. It's the same routine, same route that you always take. And then you pull up at home and you don't really remember the drive. Like you don't remember. I, this used to happen to me all the time when I was driving home. I'd get home and I'd go, did I go through the tunnel? Like I'm, I don't actually remember going through the tunnel, but I must have. Well, it's because your brain was on autopilot. And it happens all the time. But it is a bit disconcerting, though, isn't it? Well, that's an example of what your subconscious brain can do. And apparently, there is much more than that. Dr. Mike Dow has written a new book. It's called Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life. And he joins us now to talk more about it. Dr. Dow, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. What made you want to write this? Well, I went to my first hip, uh, clinical hypnosis training, and I was trained by this very lovely uh, pair, a physician and a dentist who are experts in medical hypnosis. And I wasn't really that much of a believer until I had to experience, or experience it for myself, and I fell into this deep and wondrous trance. And I have to tell you, from that moment, I was a hardcore believer. I read every study, every book, went to every single training, and I knew that I had to share this information with the world. I created my own protocol um, that I have in this book, Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life, to help people with both psychological and physical goals. Okay, medical hypnosis. Is that really a thing? It is, yeah. So, you know, hypnosis really used to be uh, sort of uh, only in the medical world. And, you know, of course, now there's Las Vegas and all these other things. But, yeah. you know, hypnosis is remarkably effective. Before we had modern anesthesia, hypnosis was what we had for anesthesia. You know, it, it was what a lot of OBGYNs would use. And, you know, but by the way, it's still remarkably effective for pain relief. Uh, a lot of women are now turning to hypnobirthing because it can make childbirth more comfortable. If you have a bad back, shoulder tension, it can really help you and you can use, you can learn to use the powers of your mind to heal the body or sometimes reprogram and rewire so that some things that are there um, are not registering. So hypnosis can create negative hallucinations. So if you have a bad back and you've had five back surgeries, wouldn't it be so nice and wonderful to just turn off that signal? And that's what the subconscious can do for you. Okay, well, wait a minute. If, if that's the case, then why don't we do this? Why, do, why hasn't this been happening more often? That's a great question. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I wanted to write this book, you know, because I felt like a lot of people, when they hear hypnosis, they think of stage tricks and they think yes. of, 
you know, smoking cessation and that's it, you know, and, and, and hypnosis, by the way, is great for that. And I help people to do that all the time or weight loss, um, but it can do so much more. You know, we know that hypnosis in, in study after study is more effective than prescription medication in treating irritable bowel syndrome. It's, uh, it's more effective than medication in treating migraine. So there's a lot of conditions that people really suffer with and hypnosis can really help. And we're really starting to see a lot of the research in these uh, respected journals starting to pop up. And, you know, the New York Times has been covering hypnosis a lot. And, you know, you're going to find a, uh, a way to use it and the way that you can tap into it um, in my book. So I hope people uh, really enjoy it and, and feel less pain and, uh, you know, build businesses of their dreams or, you know, overcome their panic attacks, you know, whatever it is that you might be searching for. You're making it, you're really building it up here, Dr. Dow. You're making it seem like the be all end all. How easy is this? Like, what does this involve? Well, it's, it's really uh, quite easy to learn how to activate the subconscious. So, you know, my technique, uh, unlike other techniques, um, you know, I combine cognitive behavioral tools with the subconscious, bilateral stimulation, and guided visualization. And I put that all in one sort of uh, tool that I call SVT or subconscious visualization technique. So it really is marrying this old school, uh, tried and true cognitive behavioral therapy modality with hypnosis. So, you know, in terms of building it up, what I'm doing is I'm sort of combining these two very effective strategies. And that's why I've had so much success in my private practice with it. You know, I've I've treated um, thousands of patients with it now. And I've just seen, um, you know, by the way, I used to be strict cognitive behavioral therapy, very sort of left brain, rational, uh, sort of a, a therapist in my practice. I worked for the Department of Mental Health in Los Angeles. Uh, and then when I started to add hypnosis, I started to see that people were getting so much better so much more quickly. Um, so I, I think it is, um, you know, sort of magical and miraculous. And in fact, when you open the cover of my book, you're going to see my brain on my protocol. So you'll see what my brain looks like normally and you'll see an EEG and also a SPECT scan, and you'll see how I can actually change blood flow and activity as well as my brain waves, which sort of explains all this, quote, magic. Um, but I, you know, I often say it's not magic, it's science. Um, and we know that the way that hypnosis can connect and disconnect different brain structures like the insula and the prefrontal cortex is why it can make changes in the body or why it can help you to overcome a phobia. So it, there really is sort of a, a scientific reason of how it helps people to make these uh, really incredible changes. Okay. When it comes to that issue then, like it's perhaps the subconscious brain at work every day and we just didn't, don't even notice perhaps or we don't realize it? Absolutely. Yeah. I love that example you gave. So, you know, driving or anything that you've learned. So if you learned how to play the piano or play tennis, there was a time in your life when you had to learn it consciously and your conscious brain had to figure out where you were going to place that hand or that right index finger, right? And then after a while, you could actually move that skill down into the subconscious and you could sort of let the subconscious take over. Um, Or the subconscious can sort of find a name for you. If there's somebody that you run into and you think, 
how did I know that person? I knew, I knew, I know I know that person from somewhere, uh, but you can't consciously find it. But then voila, three hours later, uh, your subconscious delivers you the answer out of nowhere while you're, you know, taking a walk. That happens all the time. That happens to me all the time. Isn't that fascinating? So, so really what was going on, your subconscious was going through the memories uh, of your past, opening up all of those drawers, all of those filing cabinets until it found the memory for you. Um, and you weren't even aware of it. And so there are so many things that happen in our life. You know, the other example that I love, you know, when people say, I'm going to sleep on it to make a, a big decision. Yeah, I do that well, all what, the time. What, what, what happens when we sleep? Well, we pass through alpha brain waves into theta and down into delta. Uh, and then when we dream, we're in theta brain waves. Well, guess what? Theta brain waves are the same brain waves you will see on my EEG. They're the brain waves of hypnosis. So basically, when you're in hypnosis, you are, uh, you are awake and you're dreaming, and you can control what you're dreaming about. So it's, it's really sort of interesting because we also know that dreams have health benefits. Uh, we know that people who don't dream are more likely to develop PTSD, for example. So there, there's something to be said about this wondrous theta brainwave state. Uh, and, and maybe it's not just, uh, you know, a, a, a show that makes people bark like dogs. Maybe <laughs> it's something that we all actually already use. You're in the theta brainwave state every night when you sleep and dream at night. Um, but maybe we can learn how to use it in a way that could benefit us in some way. So you're talking about essentially like pre-programming yourself. Yeah, yeah. Pre-programming yourself, rewiring yourself. You know, so many things become, you know, and let's also look at un- unhealthy things. So if you smoke a cigarette, on some level, you are no longer consciously thinking about the decision to smoke a cigarette. You are now smoking 30 cigarettes a day. So it sort of starts to happen on, much like driving, once you've driven a thousand times, it happens on a subconscious level. So we have to sort of go back and rewire things on a subconscious level. I think the same thing is true when I treat uh, patients struggling with anxiety to- or depression, their self-talk, the way that they talk to themselves, on a subconscious level, those naysaying voices are so deeply rooted that we have to go back. And it's not just a conscious level. You know, in traditional CBT, we would say, okay, talk back to that negative thought that's telling you um, that catastrophic worry. Well, sometimes we have to go way deeper than that. And that programming that maybe came from our childhood or some uh, awful experience that happened to us, we don't even realize that that created a very subconscious level of programming in our brains. And with this with hypnosis and with this, this technique, we can go back and we can access it to rewire it and reprogram ourselves. So fascinating. Dr. Dow, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Mike Dow. He's a psychotherapist, best-selling author, and a brain health expert. Our next guest is a longtime Silicon Valley insider and investor, one of the early investors and mentors to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. So close, in fact, that he recommended that Facebook hire Sheryl Sandberg, who is also now synonymous with the company. But over the last few years, Roger McNamee says he could no longer sit by quietly and watch what was happening to the company. He's written a book about the experience of trying to find out what was going on. The book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe, and Roger McNamee joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's awesome. It's so great to be back in Vancouver. It's a very catchy title, by the way, to your what, book. My wife came up with the, with the name. Smart and, lady. Well, the great part was I said it to my agent, and he goes, 
that'll never fly. And then about a week later, he calls me back and goes, I can't get the name out of my head. we got to go with it. So then I run it by the editor. He goes, that'll never fly. He takes it to the sales force, and 20 seconds later, he calls me back and goes, they just tore me a fresh one. They said, that's the title, dude. Back off. It's our favorite one of the whole year. <laughs> well, it was off to a good start then. Um, the book is so fascinating. You, there's a line in the book where you say, you are really sad about Facebook. Yeah. Why? Well, imagine this. I began my career in Silicon Valley in 1982. So I was back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, right? I mean, the space shuttle was the big new thing before PCs. So when I met Mark, he was only 22, but I had been investing for 24 years, half my life. And he was extraordinary. You know, I thought he had a better value system and a much better idea than anybody else at that time, which is really saying something. Because if you think back, the early 2000s, a lot of the companies got started got started with this notion of just ignoring the rules, ignoring the law, yeah. and just taking what they wanted. So think Uber and Lyft and Airbnb or Spotify, right. right? All of them took advantage of something. Facebook seemed like it was more balanced, like it was more user-focused, and it required identity. You had to use your school email address to get on when I first got involved with them, and I thought that was going to allow them to be bigger than than Google was at that time because it would keep trolls out. And so I really believed in Mark. And so I was sad because I spent three years as a close advisor. And then I was, you know, six, seven years just watching from the sidelines as a fan. And for whatever reason, I should have seen the signals earlier than I did. But when I finally saw them, it was just heartbreaking because, you know, this was something I'd been involved in, something I really believed in, people I really liked. And all of a sudden, I'm having to come to terms with, with a, a, a catastrophe. What were those signals, though? Like, and wh- at uh, what point did you start to think to yourself that something's wrong? So here's the thing. I retired from the investment business at the end of 2015, and I go okay. on vacation with my wife. And like a month later, boom, it's the beginning of the Democratic primary in New Hampshire in 2016. So it's January. And I start to see things coming out of a Facebook group that was notionally tied to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it was these horrible anti-Hillary Clinton memes that were deeply misogynistic, totally inappropriate. And they were spreading virally, which said, wow, somebody was advertising to get my friends into this group because there's no way they would have found it any other way. And then a few months later, Facebook expelled a group that used the advertising tools to gather data on people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. And they sold it to police departments. Now, Facebook did the right thing. expelled them. But by then, the harm had been done. And then in June of 2016, we had Brexit. So the UK referendum on the European Union. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, in the context of an election, the way Facebook virality works really favors the campaign with the more vicious, negative message. And I thought, that's really bad for democracy. That's when I, at that point, I'm realizing, wait a minute, I have three unrelated things. There's something wrong here. So I start trying to find allies, people to help me, because I didn't have any data. And it took me months before I could get anybody to listen. By then, there were more data points. I finally reached out to Mark and Cheryl in October of 2016, nine days before the U.S. election. And I said, guys, I think there's something wrong with the business model and the algorithms that lets bad actors hurt innocent people. This is nine days before the election. Before the election. Okay, and you obviously, you have the ability to get their ear. They're going to pay attention to you when you send an email, Roger. They certainly responded right away. Okay, but... But but they they didn't 
treat it like a business problem. They treat it like a public relations problem. Like, like the problem would be, what if I took what I said to them and went public with it? So what they really wanted to do was to keep me from talking about the problem. So they said, Roger, we think this is really important, but we don't think this is anything wrong with the business model. We don't think this is wrong with the algorithms. We think these are isolated things that we've taken care of, but we take you seriously. So we're going to hand you off to one of our colleagues, uh-huh. a guy I knew really well and I liked very much. So I was okay with that. Yeah. But the notion was, we're not going to take a meeting with you. We're not going to really drill down on this. We're going to let Dan take care of it. And he explains to me, Roger, Facebook is a platform, not a media company, right? So you got the same thing coming back to you, and you're listening. I know, I know this, you guys. I, I, mean, I know I this already. So in every conversation with Dan was literally, I could have, I literally could have played it back to him, right? Because by the third or fourth conversation before the election, he's saying the same things over and over again, expecting me to be satisfied, and I'm not. And I explained to him, I go, wait a minute, I've got two massive issues of civil rights and two things related to elections that are scary, and you know. Then the U.S. election happens, and after that, I freak out completely, and I explain to him, I go, dude, you need to understand, this is a trust business. You have to protect the people who use your product. You have to do what Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company, did Great story, yeah. after Tylenol. Right? Explain some, to people what that means. So in 1982 in Chicago, Illinois, some dude put poison in bottles of Tylenol on retail shelves. A few people were killed. The CEO of Johnson Johnson didn't wait a moment. The literally the minute the story breaks, he pulls every bottle of Tylenol right off the shelves, every single one, every single one. Yeah. And the net result was that you know they took a short term hit, but they didn't put it back till they created tamper proof packaging. Yeah. At which point everybody goes, "Wow, those people are really good, right? They're really trustworthy." And that they was, care about us. It's, is it's what the you same think. thing yeah. that Boeing should have done with the 737 yes. Max. And anyway, I was telling Google, uh, I'm sorry, I was telling Facebook, this is what you guys got to do. And he's going, Roger, the law says we're okay. I'm going, hang on. You got Brexit, you got the US election. And we don't know what degree you're involved, but it sure looks like you're involved a lot. And then you've got these civil rights things where you're clearly involved. You can't pretend that the law is going to protect you if people stop trusting. Was that the point then, Roger, when you realized my your idea of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook was very different from the reality of what oh, it yeah. became? And it was crushing because I'm a pro- I'd spent 34 years as a professional investor, right? I mean, I'm an analyst. I yeah. should know. And it was like, why didn't I see this sooner? I just, I wonder. Why didn't you see it sooner? It's a great question. I think it's because I was at the tail end of my career. I really liked these people. I wanted to believe they were different and better. And... You know, we all make mistakes. In this case, I made that one. Roger McNamee has been investing in Silicon Valley for 35 years. His book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And as you as you explained in the book, Roger, which is so fascinating, is that this was difficult for you to oh, come yeah. to that point to admit this. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those moments where as somebody who was retired, I could easily have sat back and just let it be somebody else's problem. And for whatever reason, I realized it was a moment in time that was really a test of my character. You know, if I wasn't going to stand up and do something about this, I wasn't really going to stand up and do anything about anything, right? And uh, it was funny because when I gave up after three months trying to persuade Facebook to do the right thing, I I had a a month of soul searching while I was trying to figure out what should I do. And I couldn't find anybody to work with on the thing. And then a miracle occurred. I was on Bloomberg Television co-hosting their tech show, which I do once or twice a year. And by pure dumb chance, 
there's a guy on there named Tristan Harris who had been the design ethicist at Google. And he's on because he'd been on 60 Minutes, the U.S. Uh, news program, talking about brain hacking. And now Tristan is an expert in persuasive technology. And he was really talking about the fact that when you take the techniques that advertisers and public relations people have used for 100 years and you put them on a smartphone, mm-hmm. you get superpowers, right? You get this ability to really manipulate to get right into people's brain, yeah. Because you can tailor it so individually. And this notion that Facebook is two and a half billion Truman shows with everybody getting their own reality and how dangerous that can be to people's public health, but also to democracy. And when I'm, I interviewed him and afterwards I called him up, I go, do you need a wingman? Because he clearly understood the underlying cause of what I had seen. And the way he articulated it was so it was so clear that I just said, let me help you. And so the two of us ganged up. And in fact, one of the first things we did was come here to Vancouver. We came to the TED conference in 2017. Right. And a couple people managed to get Tristan onto the schedule at the last minute. So he comes to deliver the pitch here in, 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 in Vancouver. And everybody... Like, we're expecting a thousand people are going to come immediately to our side, right? And the whole thing, <laughs> we're, like, we're going to solve the, listen to us? We're going to yeah. solve, how are they going to, not me, but to Tristan, right. right? But we're thinking, it's we're going to have a thousand people, we're going to be done in yeah. two weeks, right? And we get like two business cards out of it, out of a thousand people. And then we, neither one of them returned the phone call afterwards. It was like, it was immensely. And this was after, like, was this after Cambridge Analytica? No, no, was no, this was like a whole year before. Oh, okay. okay. This is still a whole year before. And all so, right. th- th- in fact, that's the problem. Was at the beginning of this thing, you know, we all had a worldview of what these products were like. And we knew that we were giving up personal data in order to get a great free service. What we didn't realize was what else was going on. That, in fact, there was a lot more data being consumed than what we notionally understood ourselves to be giving up. We and, would sit and, there. And that that data was being used for more nefarious purposes than people realized. Well, it, or it, it was available to in, on Facebook to be used by bad guys. Yeah. And it was available inside Google to be used by Google, too, right? Yeah. And so you wind up with this situation where you think you're getting a fair trade. And what re- is going on in reality is that 99% of the value is from what they call metadata, which is the data about what you're doing. So it's the device you're on. Are you moving? Are you still? Are you with other people? Where are you, right? Yeah. That has a lot of value. But your browsing history is immensely valuable. What are the 200 things you did before the thing they were interested in? What are the 200 you do after? What do other people do around that? And then they buy all this data, like banking information, you know, and... Uh, uh, location from your mobile vendor. They buy health and wellness stuff from applications, right? There was a scandal just a few weeks ago right. about women's menstrual data being sold to Facebook. And with that whole set of data, they can construct a data avatar on each and every one of us, whether we're on the platform or not, right? You're not on Facebook. No. And yet, I promise you, somewhere inside that server at Facebook, they have got a really good view of you. And the key thing is we sit there and think, well, wait a minute, our data is out there. There's nothing we can do about it. But the truth is it's the wrong way to think about it because the damage they do to us is trivial in comparison to the way they use our data to affect other people. So then is there a way to not let that happen? Yes. So the thing I've been arguing for is I believe that the 
practices around data are just wrong. So the Europeans, with their global data protection regulation, and the state of California, which has its like GDPR light, those are, were the right idea for how we understood the problem three years ago. Okay. Now what we know is that all this other data, right, because those things only cover the data you put in, which is maybe 1%. The other data is is essentially commercially available to anybody who wants it. And we need to stop that. We need to end the practice. Only of, by law, do you think? Is that I, only I think regulation? It, no, I, well, I, one would have hoped the companies would change, but I've no. given up on that. So we yeah. need regulation. So what I'd love to see here in, in Canada is just end the practice of third-party transactions in any kind of personal data. So financial, health and wellness, banking. I'd like to end the practice of companies scanning emails and documents. I mean, in the United States, if Google is, in fact, a platform, that makes them a common carrier. So like a phone company or a postal service, they're not allowed to read the contents of what you're doing, yet they read Gmail. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, you're either a platform or you're a media company. If you're reading which the content, yeah. well, my point is they're claiming that they're a platform, in which case what they're doing is breaking the law. And it, by the way, it's not like a civil huh. offense, it's a criminal offense. And so my point here is we've never had the conversations. What I want to do is stop the data traffic and then have a conversation about what's reasonable. Because if we're trying to have the negotiation from where we are today, you wind up with the global data protection regulation. You wind up addressing only a teeny fraction of the problem. And so I want to do that. And then I want to use antitrust law in the U.S. to create space for competitors. Because these guys are blocking everybody. Oh, absolutely, I mean, yeah. Facebook, Google. They buy up everybody. Well, and think about Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon control probably 80% of all the artificial intelligence talent in North America. And all of it's being devoted to behavior, behavioral manipulation, right? Which is a really Chinese idea. This is this notion with Pokemon Go or with the Google Maps where, you know, you think you're playing a game or you're trying to get from point A to point B and quickly. And they are getting you and from Google, point a. And Google's sitting there going, "How can? what can I do to change your behavior? So can I put a Pokemon behind a fence and get you to climb the fence? Yes. Can I put a Pokemon in a Starbucks and get you to go into Starbucks? Yes. If I get Starbucks to pay me, can I do a couponing thing where I can get you to buy coffee? Yes. Or in the case of Google Maps, their job is not to get you from A to B quickly. Their job is to know the time of every possible route. So some people have to be sent on inferior routes to find out what the timing is. And so some percent, yeah, my point is we don't know that's going on. And yet, they're sitting there saying, you can't regulate us because we have to compete with China in behavioral manipulation. And I'm going, why? Why? Yeah. Right? I mean, that's like competing with them to do time release anthrax. Now, I mean, I just there's some things you shouldn't be doing. And I think behavioral manipulation is really high on the list of things you shouldn't be doing. I feel like we could have you here all day to talk well, about this. But very quickly. before But I will fin- come back. Okay, good. Good to know. But before we let you go, to have to ask you, like, what is your relationship like today with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg? I have no idea. I don't have one currently. So I last, that would explain I it. last heard from them on the 30th of October of 2016. Um, I have heard indirectly. They sometimes say unflattering things about me, which is not a huge surprise because I think... Well, they still know, haven't gotten the message, though. Well, actually, interestingly, enough, I think Mark is making a real effort now to be part of the conversation. I don't like any of the things he's saying. I think the things he's saying are disingenuous, but he, for a long time, they were pretending like it didn't apply to them. Now, at least they're in the conversation. Google's still pretending like it doesn't apply to them. And, you know, Google invented that whole business model and they're really good at it. And they work really closely with a lot of governments. So they think they've got everybody taken care of. And I'm hoping that's not true. 
We'll see about that. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it is such a pleasure to be back in Vancouver and to be especially to be here with you. And I'm come back anytime. My wife and I, we have a, a vacation home here. So Do we you? come here regularly. Okay, then that's it. Now we know we're going to be calling you every yeah. time we need to talk about this topic because right. it's a good one. The book is called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Uh, it is written by Roger McNamee. And you know what? You are going to want to read this if you have any concern at all about your private data, your private information, what's been going on on Facebook, you name it. And make sure you check that out. That is Roger. You know, I feel like Joy Fielding and I could sit here and talk about the books that we are <laughs> reading right now all afternoon, but the best-selling author is here to talk about her books, actually. You've probably seen one of the many that she has written. Maybe it was The Bad Daughter, She's Not There, Someone Is Watching. I mean, you name it. She has sold more than 25 million copies worldwide. I would say she's probably Canada's most beloved thriller writer, and she's been doing this way before these books became popular in the latest kind of genre trend. Wouldn't you say that's true? Yeah, actually, they, I mean, I'm told that I kind of started this whole thing, <laughs> which I, you know, I, I I, didn't realize, of course, when you're doing things. But way back, you know, I was, I've been doing this for a long time. And yes, it's suddenly very, very popular. Oh, it sure is. Her latest book, the tw- 29th? 20, 28th, I 29th, believe. 28th, 29th? I think it's 28th. I always I have I to count them. them right this morning. I have yeah. to count. Is it, well, it could be also because I did one, a, a little a short little book for uh, to help readers, beginner readers. Right. Uh, this one is called All the Wrong Places. It is out now. I'm holding it in my hands, and I am very excited to check this one out. Uh, you also love to read. Yes, I do. Like that's So how do you balance that with... Uh, Turning out a book a year. I mean, well, I'm, I'm slowing down a little bit right now. So um, I actually, when I'm working on a book, when I'm writing, I find it very difficult to read. And if I do read anything, it's mostly nonfiction because I find nonfiction easier to read than fiction. Really? Yeah, well, in, um, because it doesn't require the same level of commitment or concentration. You know, you don't have to really immerse yourself in another world. You can pick it up and put it down and you just kind of absorb information. It's not, it it doesn't require kind of sticking with it to the same way that a novel does. Right. And um, so I find when I'm working on a novel, if I'm reading another novel, it's like an intrusion of another voice. I can and, see that, yeah. and also I get tired. You know, I'm, I'm tired of sitting in front of the computer all day or however long I sit. And, uh, and just the concentration and, and my eyes get tired. And, and when I would normally then read, all I want to do is watch junk TV. I, I really don't want to concentrate. I feel like we're soulmates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but when I'm traveling or when we're in Florida or on holiday anywhere, then that's when I do the bulk of my reading. Well, now, you know, you live this, you know, you read, you travel, you do things that all seems all very straightforward. Then where do you come up with some of these very evil and twisty things that happen in your books? <laughs> because I'm really a very evil and twisted human being. <laughs> it comes naturally. I mean, people say sometimes about like with this book, well, how did you get in the mind of a serial killer? Because yeah. there, there are some chapters that are devoted to this are from the point of view of the serial killer but actually the book is about four women primarily and on on using dating apps to meet men very common today uh and the and there's a serial killer trolling these sites looking for victims Uh, the scenes the chapters from the point of view of the serial killer were actually the probably the easiest chapters to write because women are much more complicated than serial killers Serial killers are really 
very one-dimensional. They are very shallow. They have one basic emotion, which is anger, and they are totally self-absorbed. So it's really, they're not very complicated. one-dimensional. Yeah. yeah, you know, whereas women are really complicated. And so um, they're much, they're more of a challenge, really, the, the, when I had to get into the different women right. in the, and their circumstances. But the serial killer, they're really, <laughs> other than their crimes, not particularly interesting. I'm curious, though, because a lot of your books, there's always that great twist in there. There's always something that you don't expect. Right. So what comes first, then? Is it the, the, does the twist in your, come first in your head, and then you build the plot around that, or does it come naturally as you're writing? Um, well, I know what the twist is going to be. I'm not sure, uh, um, and it's evolved. I mean, not all of my books actually had a twist, but uh, it sort of seems to have evolved that way a, a bit more um, lately. Um, I think I get kind of an, an idea, and I know that it's not going to be strictly conventional. I've got to, you know, do something. So once I kind of get the idea and I play with it, well, how how is this going to be interesting, or what can I do that the the reader isn't going to be ex- expecting? Um, so sometimes the twist, I, I get the twist right away, or I I think, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to do a book and and have the reader follow it through, thinking one yeah. thing and then sort of put that on its ear. Um, but And sometimes things develop again as you're going. I always, though, I, I know where I'm going. I think if you're writing any kind of suspense, you have to know your, your end point. Otherwise, you can't build toward anything. You, have to, you always have to be upping the ante and increasing the tension. And if you don't know where you're going, then you can't do that. So I always know you know, roughly where I'm headed. I may not know exactly how it's going to happen. Like occasionally it doesn't, you know, I'll be a chapter away from a major twist and I still won't know what it's going to be. And then suddenly I get, oh my God, I have it. But that's the key really, because if I'm not surprised, I can't really expect the reader to be surprised. Oh, that makes sense. Is that what keeps you interested then? Like, you've been writing this genre for 30 years. I mean, long before Gone Girl, long before yeah, Girl on right. the Train and The Woman at the Window. I and know, all there this, are all these girls. Girls, women. At least, at least the women are grown up. I know. And, and long before all of those books became popular, you have been writing this particular genre. What is it about that that you love so much? Well, I love, I, I mean, I find women really interesting. So, um, I and what I, what I, didn't see a lot of and still don't sometimes is is in commercial fiction and popular fiction uh real believable women uh and and you get a lot of super women or you know women who are good at this and they're beautiful and they're rich and they're talented and they solve crimes you know like they're they're just not necessarily the women i know the women i know are smart and funny and complicated and um you know, neurotic, whatever else. They're fully realized human beings. And so what I wanted to do was tell a story um, about the women I know and and have readers say, you know, I know her or I am her. And so that was kind of important to me. And then I like a plot. I like a good, strong plot. I don't want to write you know, these boring, plotless novels, you know, but <laughs> they go nowhere and you're just kind of thinking, oh, please let this end. And I, so I want to to sort of frame, put these characters into an interesting story. Right. And 
make them believable because even if the plot veers into like kind of wild territory that may not happen to your everyday woman, if you believe the character, if I've done my job and I've created a real believable woman, then you will follow her anywhere and you will care about what happens to her and you it doesn't matter how far-fetched the plot. You know, C.J. Right. Run is about a, a woman who wakes up, well, goes for a walk one day and discovers she can't remember who she is and, and then she sees that her pockets are full of $100 bills and the front of her dress is covered with blood. Well, I don't know how many women have ever experienced that. I'm guessing not many. Not too many. Yeah. And yet I have had women all over the world come up to me and say, you wrote my life. Really? Yes. And it's... I and yet th- you're running, you're writing these thrillers, these yeah. very kind of twisty, suspenseful books. Yeah, because again, you understand with, you, you get the women, you understand what they're going through. It's, you know, I'm, I'm dealing in basic human emotions. So even if the, the plot is relatively far-fetched, uh, although I don't think they necessarily are, but even if it is, the women themselves, you know these women, so you identify with what they're going through. Right. We have all felt um, love. We've all, Well, hopefully we've all felt love. We've felt disappointment. We've felt loneliness. We've felt frustration. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you don't know who you are. You know, it's like... It's, you know, is this my life? How can this be my life? So that, those are the sorts of things uh, that I'm I'm writing about. What about your research then? Because like your books take place in all different places, all different backgrounds. Like how much research do you do for each novel? How do you decide where something is going to take place? Um, usually I decide on the city according to what city, uh, what setting I think would best serve, serve the story. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, uh, I like to move it around just so I don't get bored. The reader doesn't get bored. I mean, there are some writers who are, set every book in the same place. And, you know, it's like Ann Tyler, who I think is a good writer, but I think it's time to get out of Baltimore. You know, it's like, <laughs> just, you know, broaden your horizons I was a thinking like bit. Louise Penny as well, right? Like <laughs> oh, she writes yeah, in Yeah, she writes in the very, in Quebec, you know, yeah. yeah. And so... I like to move it around. It's a little more interesting for me, and I, I hope the reader. Uh, but then I set the books, depending, again, what the store, what I feel are the demands of the story. Um, sometimes I've set the books in Canada, not too many, because I find the U.S. landscape kind of works better with my books. Uh, so do you city, go to you know, the city? Do you check no, it out? Sometimes. Sometimes I have been in the cities. Uh, sometimes I just work through guidebooks, or now the Internet has made research much easier because I'm not a big fan of research. I know there are, yeah, some writers love it. I, to me, it feels too much like homework. So I, I do as much research as I need to, to make the story believable, but I don't do a whole lot. I could rather make it up. So I like to make up. I'm like I'm like Trump. I like to make up my facts. So um, I, I find that I, you know, I, I'll, I'll set it wherever, you know, like Florida. I love setting books in Florida because Why? Florida works on such a, on so many levels. It works just plain, you know, just because there's Florida. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and the weather is always nice. I don't have to worry about snow and seasons stuff. But also it looks idyllic. You know, it looks it like paradise. It's beautiful. But then you look a little closer and there's the alligator and by the, the swamp. There's the, the poison the snake. The, yeah. There's the constant threat of hurricanes. So it's really like there's all this underlying horror just kind of waiting for you. <laughs> Do you um, already have an 
idea of like what your next book is going to be? Like how far in advance do you have ideas percolating in your head? I get, um, when I was doing a book a year and I'm, I think I'm probably going to take a little longer this time. Uh, I would sort of almost have one ready as I was finishing one. I would wow. be already starting to think of the next one. After I finished all the wrong places, I just thought, you know what, I feel like a little break. So I kind of took it easy, and I'm just now starting to, uh, I've put together a, a very short outline, and uh, I'll Is that what you usually do then? You work, on, work from an outline? I like to get, I like to do it. Somebody, uh, an old agent actually once said to me, do an outline, and it was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, because it helps you organize your thoughts. You don't have to do, you know, they can be anywhere from like two pages to 12 pages, whatever. And it can be as, it's mostly plot, a little bit about who the characters are. And then this is the basic story. But um, I don't, I don't do as much in the way of an outline as I used to. I I just get the basic, like the beginning, the end, uh, maybe something, something crucial that has to happen kind of midway. And then kind of a few interesting things that I know are going to happen. But Part of the fun of writing is just not knowing what you're going to do from day to day, just sitting down and see, see what happens. How many hours a day do you write? Is there, do you just, whatever uh, works? I, when I'm working on a book, it's usually a minimum of three to four hours a day. Uh, I find four hours is really optimum. After that, my brain kind of gets a little fuzzy. Yeah, I can see that. And, uh, but if I have a whole day to work, then sometimes I'll, I'll work for maybe like the whole day. I'll take little breaks, but... Um, I usually try and work in the morning and then save the afternoon for, you know, errands and all that regular everyday stuff. stuff. Yeah. The pe- the stuff that the people in your books don't do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, they do it. They do it. <laughs> While they're also going through all this yes, other stuff trauma. in there. Uh, Joy Fielding's latest book is called All the Wrong Places. It is available now. Check it out. I know what I'm going to be doing tonight. Joy, thank you so much for joining oh, us. My pleasure.